Grab your Bibles, if you will, and let's get back to work. Turn with me, if you will, to uh, Genesis 32. And we'll wrap up our little uh, theology of limping this morning. Kind of, sort of. Maybe really kind of, sort of, but you'll see next week, I guess. Or, um, I want to begin reading um, at verse 30. Genesis 32, 30. You follow in your copies as we read from a book that is inerrant and inspired. The very mind of God is black words on a white page. You follow. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. And they wept. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God endures forever. I want to start this morning by um, going over a lesson as to how one might read one's Bible. If you can stick your finger in Genesis 32 and stay there for a minute, flip over with me to John chapter 3. Boy, John chapter 3 is easy to find. Uh, people know John chapter 3 pretty well. Uh, John, In fact, you know some of it by heart, I bet. Uh, the, six, the 16th verse that says, for God so loved the world that he gave. You know this chapter. This is John 3, but it's a... It's a chapter that opens, it begins with a dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus. Remember that? You might recall that Nicodemus came to Jesus in the night and uh, wanted to inquire as to whether or not Jesus was the real deal. And um, so he asked him, you know, nobody can do this thing that you, uh, you know, what's what's the deal? And and that's when Jesus makes his famous statement in verse 3, you must be born again. But it's not that, I I want you to see verse 4. Again, we're talking about a lesson as to how we study our Bibles. Look at verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, guys, do you see the problem? Here's what happens. They're in this conversation, and Jesus says something about being born. And when when Nicodemus hears that word about being born, the only birth that pops into his little mind is a physical birth. 
And you see what he says in verse 4. He said, well, I don't understand how they're going to enter with a woman again. I, you know, I'm going to be born. I don't understand. I don't get it. Do you see the problem? The problem is Nicodemus was thinking in terms of birth physically only. <laughs> while all, all the while, Jesus is speaking of a birth spiritually. And thus, they passed like ships in the night. Uh, Nicodemus, I don't understand the thing about the birth thing. And Jesus is talking about a spiritual birth. That's pretty easy, isn't it? And, and there's the lesson, guys. That's the thing that we've got to keep in mind when we're, when we're studying this thing that, that contains all of this stuff that God has said. Um, because so often, the meaning of what's being said here does not lie on the surface of the words. There's something else being said. And though it doesn't, might not immediately jump out at you, it's there. And you've got to understand that God often communicates things beyond normal categories. Um, is the message, when Nicodemus is talking to Jesus, is there something, is there some other way that I should understand this? And so often there is. And I say all of that, ladies and gentlemen, to say, that is so true of our text this morning. Peniel, the face of God. Uh, do, you, um, do you find there something that is a cause to pause? Do you see in it any kind of invitation for Meditation? Well, you should. Don't make the mistake of Nicodemus and, um, and read that and say, oh, well, there's the face and just, and just move right along. Guys, there's a lot beneath the surface, lying just beneath the surface here. There's a lot just waiting for us to mine it. Now, here's a hint. Uh, let me tease you just, just a little bit. If you've ever enjoyed the parable of the prodigal son, remember that one? Remember, I just switched on you. I went to the New Testament. If you've ever enjoyed the message of the prodigal son, you're going to love this. Um, so, stay, so stay awake. Don't, don't leave me. Our first task in understanding all this is that we've got to come to grips with this whole face thing. So this is rather academic, but you've got to get this before we can go any further. All right? You've got to understand this face thing that's in the text. Uh, I have seen the face of God, that thing. Peniel, name it. We've got to understand that. Here we go. Guys, our face is the most public part of us. Um, it's the least covered area of our body. 
uh, gang, it's the most recognizable part of who we are. We don't uh, fill our high school annuals with pictures of people's feet. We stick their faces in there. Now, um, think of the, the, the numerous ways we use the term face uh, in, in our common English parlance. Like, um, there's going to be a face-off. Or, um, I uh, think he's losing face. Or, um, on that one, he did an about face. Or, um, I'm just going to have to face him down. Or, he's a kind of a in-your-face kind of guy. Guys, do you see what we've done? We've taken the term face (laughs) and we've put it in ways, in language, we've developed idioms. Everybody knows what an idiom is, don't you? Just Just a piece of communicating. We've, we've taken face and we've made it into an idiom. When, when, when I say he's a kind of an in-your-face kind of guy, God, that's an, that's, that's an idiom. I don't mean I get physically onto his face. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his very famous and excellent book called The Four Loves, in the book he describes marital, or he compares Marital love to brotherly love. Now, this is a little um, racy, so mm, that'll wake you up on it. This is how he compares marital love with brotherly love. He says, marital love is face-to-face love. While brotherly love is shoulder-to-shoulder love. And you see, C.S. Lewis is doing the same thing. He's not saying that to be married, I have to stick the point of my nose on the point of Susie's. But he's describing something. He's using the term idiomatically. Gang, the Bible uses the term face. I didn't count them, but... Um, this is what you pay for me to pay me to do, and that is to research things and hundreds of times, hundreds of times, and on, from time to time, very rarely, but from time to time, it does mean this face. But in the vast majority of cases, when the Bible is using the term face, it is using it like we use it idiomatically. Guys, I, I, we could spend the rest of the day. I, I made this whole long sheet of passages, and I was going through them this week when we were gone. And, and I thought, I can't do all of this. We don't have time to do all of this. But let me just, let me just mention a couple of quick ones. Um, Genesis chapter, don't turn, just might, maybe write this down. Genesis chapter 50, verse 1. It's at the end of Jacob's life, and his son Joseph, you know, the guy with the many, who's the coat of the many colors, and he's the king of Egypt now and all that business. And, and Jacob is dying. And chapter 50, verse 1 says, Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept on him and kissed him. He fell on Jacob's face. Now, I hope not. 
um, if he falls on his face, it's going to be hard to kiss him. But, but see, guys, that's not the way you understand that. He fell on his face and kissed him. We'll come back to it in just a second. Um, Psalm 27, verse 8. The text says, You have said, O Lord, seek my face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Now tell me, when was the last time you tried to figure out what color eyes God had? That's not what the text means. Let me give you two more. Guys, in the New Testament, John 1, 1, critical passage. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Remember that one? Well, in the Greek language, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. In the Greek. The, 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 the translation is, he was before his face. That is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was before the face of God. Here's my final one. And you're going to recognize this one. You're going to know this one. It goes like this. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. I use that a lot around here, don't I? I mean, you, if you've been around very long, you know I, that's an ironic blessing, a pronouncement of an ironic blessing. May the Lord's face shine upon That's probably mentioned 40 times in the Bible, the Lord's face shining upon us. Now, guys, I've done all that just to give you this point. Here's the point. To have the face of God is to have intimacy with God. The closer one's access to the face of God in the language of the scriptures, the greater the intimacy. Gang, I'll go back. Being face to face with your spouse is a moment of consummate intimacy. Physically. To be face to face with God is a moment of consummate intimacy. Spiritually. Now guys, go back with me real quick and let's read verse 30 again. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God Face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. Guys. Do you see now what this whole story about wrestling with God is about? It's not about wrestling. It's not about limping. It's about intimacy. Intimacy with God and how it is gotten. That is, how is intimacy with God gotten? 
This event that we've spent seven weeks on, this event initiated by God, involving wrestling and resulting in a limp, this event is designed not to produce a limp. It's designed to produce intimacy between God and one of his own. That's the point. Getting face to face with God. Now, there are two things in this last part of the phase of the story that are very instructive. And I want to, I want to leave you with these two things. First of all, the when and the how. That is the when of intimacy and the how of intimacy. All right. Those are the final two things I want to show you and then we'll wrap this thing up. First of all, I want you to notice the occasion of the intimacy. That is the when of the intimacy. When did this happen? And do I need to remind you that the occasion was a fight? Gang, most of the Christians that I talk to are, are people who have some kind of pineal story to tell. Either, either when they first became a Christian, the thing that brought them to Christ, or later on as a Christian that was the event that changed their whole life. But most every Christian I talk to has their own version of Peniel. They have their own version of, of a wrestling with God match. A, 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 an event where they were wounded, where they were given a new name, and they, they discovered through this event in the most memorable of ways, the most unexpected outcome, the face of God. There are people, they never really danced until they limped. There are people who, because of the event, have their self-reliance shattered because they've wrestled with the man and who have found him to be both tough and embracing they have found him to be willing to wound but also able to bless and they found him always they found him stronger than they were he was not safe but oh, he was good. Guys, let, let, me, let me say all that just a bit differently that hopefully you'll get it or that I'm, I'll be clear enough. Folks, it never ceases to amaze me how many people tell me that they met God through some kind of tragedy. You know, guys, in a... In a crisis, everybody stops pretending that everything's just fine. And this crisis rudely breaks that spell that the world seems to have over them. 
a, uh, a man's young wife dies of cancer, or a woman's husband endures a paralyzing stroke the week after his retirement, only the day before they were supposed to leave on their long-awaited trip to Hawaii. A child is, is disabled by a freak bicycle accident. A family's house burns to the ground along with everything in it. And, you know, they, they really did intend to get insurance. They really did. And suddenly, like Jacob, they're alone and everything they value is removed to the other side. And the man wrestles with them until daybreak. And then, perhaps for the first time in my whole spiritual existence, the knowledge of God somehow seeps out of my head and into my heart. And somewhere in the midst of the wrestling match, we tell ourselves that we've hit rock bottom, not because we really have, but because we are afraid to go any deeper, to hurt any more, because we so want this to be over. And then we ask, what's your name? And we get nothing. But eventually, eventually we cry, uncle. And the sun begins to rise, and we limp away with a new name. And we're so excited that perhaps for the first time ever, we taste just a little bit of intimacy with God. And nothing from that day forward ever looks quite the same. My career my family, myself, they all have been permanently adjusted because I have, I have been with God face to face and I now live. Guys, Jacob's life was a life entangled with moral ambiguities, just like so many of ours. The man who left Canaan 20 years earlier than this event is not the same man that leaves Peniel. And he knows, that is, Jacob knows, without that wrestling match, who would I be? And you know, um, you and I, we ask a very similar question. Without the wrestling match, who would I be? The limp is just there to remind me of my brokenness and my yieldedness and the sweet taste of intimacy it crosses the palate of my soul. Was it a dark night of the soul? Oh boy, you bet it was. 
though I don't relish ever going through that again. I now know God in a way that I would have never known Him otherwise. And so I thank God. I thank God for the limp. That's the occasion, ladies and gentlemen. That's normally how it takes place. Or normally when it takes place. But I want you to see, finally, the terms of intimacy or the how. Now, you've got to stay with me. This is kind of complex. Gang, what awaits Jacob in chapter 33, that is, what he's about to experience with Esau, throws light or sheds light on what Jacob has just experienced in verse 30 of chapter 32. Now, let me explain that. As the sun rises and Jacob limps away from this encounter with God, he limps across this open plain, we're told in, in uh, verse, or chapter 33, <clears throat> on his way to this dreaded encounter with his brother. Gang, that's how this story already started. He had to go meet up with Esau, and it's about to happen. So there he goes. He's, the sun is sh- shining now, and he's limping across the plain. And yeah, right, on, uh, uh, right out there is this moment that I have dreaded. So this crippled man hobbles over to Esau and look at verse 3. And he he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. Guys, he bows seven times, which must have been awfully painful for somebody with a dislocated hip and awfully hard to watch if you were Esau. And then, to his utter amazement, verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. To his utter amazement, Esau loves him, welcomes him, receives him. And the prodigal has come home. And of all things, he is greeted with a welcome embrace. Guys, what Jacob expected, he didn't get. And what he got, he didn't deserve. Esau, with his army of 400 men, should have destroyed him. But instead of destroying destroying him, he gets... Grace. And in that moment, the moment of verse 4, a moment that only he and the prodigal son and the rest of us who are prodigals, at that moment, Jacob gets it. Look with me at verse 10. I didn't read this, but look at verse 10 and 33. Esau has said, I don't want your gift. And he says in verse 10, uh, No, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from from my hand. Here it is. For I have seen your face. 
which is like seeing the face of God. Did you get it? Guys, the welcome of Esau, this piece of restored intimacy with his brother, clarifies for Jacob what has just taken place at Peniel. Having Esau's face clarifies for him having God's face. Look at 3230 again. He says, I have seen God face to face and yet my life, and yet my life has been delivered. Do you you hear what he's saying? He said, what a surprise. I saw God face to face and I don't get it. I don't understand. I'm still alive. And yet, he goes to Esau. Esau receives him. And at that moment, he says, Now I get it. Seeing your face, Esau, is like seeing the face of God. The face of the one who I thought was my enemy. The the, the face of the one who I thought was against me. The the face of the one that I thought I was supposed to approach him rather cringingly and and, and with gestures of of self-abasement and bringing all kinds of gifts to appease him and cajole him. Instead, I find that I run into an embrace. Prepare the fatted calf for the lost one has been found. Gang, the shock of not getting what he deserved from Esau now explains why he didn't get what he deserved from God. God does not give himself, folks, to those who bring gifts and self-promotion or self-abasement or self-anything. Intimacy with God is not gotten by giving him anything. to give him something that will produce an intimacy with him. No, ladies and gentlemen. This God delights to give himself to the undeserving, to the broken, to the limping. And he does it in a pure act of unmerited favor. And that's what we call Gang, in a very small way, what Esau does illustrates what God does on a far grander scale. God receives and loves 
those who don't deserve to be received and loved. And it was a shock to Jacob. And if you are here trying to earn your way into heaven, this message will be a shock to you. But a good shock. And may I be so daring as to suggest that millennia later, when Jesus in Luke 15 tells the story of the prodigal son, he couldn't help but be reminded of Esau's reception of the prodigal Jacob. What Esau did looks a little bit like what the father does. The father delights in receiving the broken and his reception of them is based on nothing that they bring. His reception of them is based on all that he, God, is. Gang, does the term grace confuse you? Then go read again the story of Esau's reception of a broken, guilty, helpless man. I know. One other thing and I'm done. You know, when, when Jacob finally gets to his brother and they are walking, I, I can't help but believe that Esau looked at his brother and said, Hey, hey, brother Jacob, uh, what happened to your hip? How do you answer that, folks? How does one begin to explain the joy of submission to God or the beauty of yieldedness? How do you begin to explain my gratitude for my limp? How, how do you explain the, the radical nature of conversion? How do we tell our culture, steeped in self-reliance, how a life of submission to God is the only life worth living? How do we explain the delight of intimacy with God. My history, ladies and gentlemen, is a history of struggle. Struggling with God. Struggling to understand. Struggling to yield. With this very critical lesson. The more I lose... more I win. Our Father, I do pray that you will encourage your people by reminding them that the only life that is worth living is the one that's yielded to the God of all grace and the God of all mercy. Give us the delight of enjoying that ourselves and then the privilege 
of sharing it with people who think that the only way they'll ever enjoy life is gathering more stuff, winning more prizes, promoting more of self. Bring them to the place where they see that God receives. Only the guilty, only the broken, only the helpless. For indeed, they're the only ones whose hands are empty enough to receive the gift of eternal life. Do that, Father, for Jesus' sake. We pray in His name.